In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue the series that we started two weeks ago about the Ten Commandments. Um, we spoke about how the Ten Commandments was uh, given to God as two tablets on Mount Sinai. Uh, sorry, given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai as two tablets. We spoke about how Moses had, um, uh, while, while he was up on the mountain, uh, Aaron, his brother, and the other people, when they saw that he was gone for a long time, they made a golden calf and they began to worship it. And Moses, when he came down, he was so angry that he threw the two tablets on the ground and they, they broke. Then God had to remake them uh, again. We spoke about how um, the, the Ten Commandments were broken up into two parts. The first part is kind of our responsibility toward God. And that's the first four commandments. And then the next six commandments, we're speaking about our responsibility to uh, one another. The first commandment that we covered last time was essentially saying that we should have no other gods except for God. So we should we should worship no other God. The second commandment, which is similar to it, and actually some people combine the first and second commandment into one commandment. Um, I believe the Catholic Church, they do so. Um, but we take them as two separate commandments, okay? Two separate commandments. And this is what it says. Um, says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So, the second commandment sounds maybe similar to us as the first of you shall have no other gods. But the focus here of the second commandment is you shall not make for yourself any carved image, meaning you shall not make any means of worshiping God in, in, in the form of like a physical idol. Right. So God is not uh, in an idol for us to worship that idol as though we are worshiping God. The other um, nations who, who believed in other gods, they didn't just believe in gods like, you know, spiritually, but they believed that gods were physical objects. So they would make like a physical idol and then they would worship that idol as being God. So God is saying not only that you should have no other God except for me, but do not make an idol to represent me and then worship that idol as though it is, um, it is me. This does not prohibit the use of images in worship, just that we do not worship those images, right? So, for instance, we use different things in the church, and we even venerate those things. Like we have icons, for instance. Icons as a representation of something. Like if you had a rep uh, an icon of, of Christ, okay, and maybe we would prostrate before the icon, and maybe we would touch the icon and get its blessing. Maybe we would pray before the icon. What is it that we are doing when we do that? Is that the same thing as worshiping? What do you think? Like, is that contravening this command? Gabe? The answer is no. But why? Why is it no? Why? Yes, yeah, so it is a reminder to us 
of, of something. It is a reminder to us of God, and we are worshiping God. We are not worshiping the image. Whereas the pagan nations, they were actually worshiping those images. They were worshiping the idol as God itself. Okay, When there are some churches, for instance, that are very against, even they, they may be coming into an Orthodox church and seeing icons and seeing the way we venerate them and be very uncomfortable thinking that this is like worshiping the saints or worshiping these images. But actually, if you look in the Old Testament, the same God who gave the commandment, do not make any carved image to worship, right? Look at the kinds of things that he commanded to be done, okay? So for instance, um, in the tabernacle, okay, he said what? Um, you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. The mercy seat was like the the the... The, the Ark of the Covenant, um, on top of it were these two cherubim facing each other with their wings touching, okay? This was something God had commanded. If you actually look in the book of um, First Kings, when God is telling King Solomon how to build the temple, there are so many ornamented things and, and angels and statues and, you know, things like that. So if God was saying, don't use any image at all, okay, then God would not have asked them, to make it in the way that he did, okay? God also commanded um, in the book of Numbers that they make a serpent of bronze, okay? So it says, so Moses made this bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. This um, event that happened actually is um, God had um, allowed these serpents to come and to bite and poison um, the people because of their sin, and he told Moses to, to make this pole that had this bronze serpent on it. And anyone who looked on the serpent lived and was not killed by this poison. Okay? And this, of course, is a symbolism. Okay? The bronze serpent up on the pole represents what? The cross. Christ on the cross. Okay? So we are like, look to Christ for salvation, just like those people were looking at this bronze serpent on the pole. This is why, actually, if you notice... So you know when the bishop comes and he visits the church, what does he have in his hand? He has a staff in his hand. And, he, and that staff represents that he is like a shepherd, right? Who's the staff? But if you notice, and sometimes the bishops don't do it, although technically they're supposed to do it, and the pope does it as well, is there is another second staff that you might see a deacon holding when the bishop is present. Has anyone ever noticed this? Okay, and if you look closely on the top of that staff, it's it's like a bronze-colored staff, and on the top there is a serpent. Okay, this also represents what? Because the bishop is a representative of Christ. When the bishop comes in to the church, it's like Christ came in. Again, we are not considering the bishop to be Christ, but he is a representative of Christ. He is an image of Christ to us, right? So when the bishop comes in and the deacon is holding the bronze serpent, it reminds us of the salvation that we received in Christ. Okay. This is the bronze serpent that is mentioned here. It's a symbol, right? It's a symbol that we use in the church, right? Not just back then, but we use now. So the first commandment tells the people who to worship. The second commandment tells them how to worship and how not to worship, okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire lest you act corruptly and make for yourself a carved image in the form of any figure. Do not make any figure of God to worship it. 
Okay, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage." Because all of the, the surrounding nations worship these things. They worship different animals. They worship the celestial bodies like the moon and the stars and the sun, right? And they consider those to be gods. So the idea that our God is a God above any creation, above any object. He cannot be contained within them. He is not in them. Do not worship God in these objects. These objects are the creation of God. They are not to be worshipped themselves. And this is... The, the, the essence of the second commandment and how it makes it different than the first commandment. What is it that the other nations believe, the, the, the polytheists, right? The, the ones who believed in many gods. What is it they believed? So they believed that there are both visible and invisible causes in the world. There are some things they can see that are visible and there are some things that they consider that are invisible. There are also natural and personal causes. A personal cause is, some, is a person through their will taking an action. The natural cause is something that is happening in nature, okay? Through some kind of normal, natural process. Some natural causes are water runs down the hill, day and night cycle. If you drop an object, it falls to the ground. These things you call like are scientific. They're, they are, they're physical things that are happening in the world and we are able to understand them. Personal causes are the actions of other people, like a person chooses to do something. They choose to kill, they choose to steal, they choose to lie, and these actions are governed by some hidden desire. The actions that I take in the world are governed by some desire that I have in me. And these are unpredictable and not mechanical in nature. You cannot write a physics equation to describe what I'm about to say. You can write a physics equation to describe what happens if I drop a ball, but you can't know what is it that I'm about to say because it is a personal cause and not a natural cause, okay? So there are also visible and invisible, okay? The visible things are the things we observe in the world, the material world, okay? Whether it be natural, okay? We observe the physical laws of the world. We observe physical things happening or personal, because we observe human beings, it is visible. But there are also invisible things, okay? There are also invisible things. This is again, like the way, like if you're trying to understand how the, the polytheists believe. What exists in the invisible world? In the invisible world, are there natural causes? Are there personal causes? Are things just happening naturally, like according to some set rules and laws? Or are there gods that inhabit this invisible world? that have personal, like a mind, for them to choose and decide how is it that they want to govern things. The ancient um, polytheists believed that the invisible realm was peopled by personal forces just like the physical realm. So just like in the physical world you have human beings that have personal causes, are able to act in the world based on mind, they also believe that in the invisible world there were people, which they would call gods, that have a mind that are able to act, okay? So in their mind, the invisible forces were more like the unpredictable behavior of human beings than they were the predictable natural laws. 
So even though we maybe can nowadays, we understand like the cycle of the moon, we can understand, for instance, when there's going to be an eclipse, right? We know when there's going to be an eclipse because we can calculate it. For them, perhaps, not understanding these laws, when they would see the eclipse happen, they think that this is the decision of a god. A god decided that he would darken the sun, right? For some reason. Maybe this would be seen as a curse. So they didn't see it as a natural thing. They saw it as a personal cause rather than natural, okay? These gods acted largely in an unpredictable way to bring about their desires in the physical realm. This is how the the, the, the pagans believed. And there were many such gods all interacting with physical reality. And these gods were at cross purposes with each other, meaning each one has its own desire, each one has its own goal. They're not necessarily working together. Maybe they're actually against one another in competition with one another. Some of them were stronger, some of them were weaker. And the outcome in human affairs was the net result of the actions of all the gods working with or against one another. So everything that is happening around us, we can say is a combination of all of the work of all of these gods that exist in this invisible realm, right? That are have minds like we have as human beings doing things that are unpredictable that we don't know, okay? So we are living at the whims um, of all of these gods. Thus life was totally unpredictable and it was best to remain in good standing with the most powerful of gods Right, because if if the if the most powerful of the gods liked you and you had their favor, then they would protect you, or at least they would not harass you. It was thought the gods were infinite and imperfect, right? Because they were petty, um, they had limitations. There wasn't um, they were not necessarily doing good all the time. Sometimes they did things to harm humanity, right? They are simply invisible forces that affect human affairs in a personal, personal way. These gods were not above the cosmos, but were a part of it, right? Because there is a, some kind of realm where these gods exist. And none of these gods created that realm. They are born into this realm, right? Just as we as human beings are born in the earth, these gods exist in such a realm that they are not above it. So they are not above the universe, they are not above this spiritual realm, but they are born into the spiritual realm and are part of the spiritual realm. A god can be defeated or nullified by other gods, or even by human ingenuity. Actually, if you read in the Greek mythology, there's different stories about how human beings, because of their strength or their, because of their cleverness, were able to defeat gods in different ways, right? So the gods were limited. It was possible to defeat them. One example is this god, Amun-Ra, who was the sun god in ancient Egypt. He was a personal being with a mind. The Egyptians did not believe that he was in fact the sun, but that the sun was a physical representation of him in the physical world. Okay? So, so he existed in the spiritual realm, this god, right? Because he has a mind. He's like a person. But the sun was his physical avatar in the world, representing him in the world. He and the other gods actually operated in a completely different realm, right? So to the Egyptians, the sun's nature and character accurately represented Amun-Ra's personality and nature. The way the sun moved, the, the nature and the characteristics of the sun represented this god Amun-Ra. So what is the second commandment saying with that kind of background of the way the polytheists understand? 
What God is saying is nothing in the visible realm is like me. Do not attribute me to anything in the existence. I am not like the sun. I am not like the moon. I am not like any animal, right? I am not represented by anything physical in the world that you can see, okay? Do not conceive of me as a God who can be represented as a finite image. If you do, then it will not be me you are worshiping, but a shrunken deity of your own imagination, right? Do not create anything. Again, when the Israelites were at the bottom of Mount Sinai and Moses was up top, gone for a long time, and the Israelites said, um, where is this man Moses? We don't know where he is. And he tells Aaron, go and make for us a god. And they, when they made the god, he said, he said to them, what this is the god who delivered you from the land of Egypt. As though it is God, but represented in this object, right? And so this is what he is saying. No, do not do this. Do not represent me as an object. I am not part of the universe, but I am greater than it. Because again, if the polytheists believe that these gods were part of the cosmos, our God is greater than the cosmos. He's, he, he, he's the one who created the cosmos. He's the one who created all things. So there is nothing. God is the one who created heaven. You know, even we speak about kind of like God lives in heaven. God doesn't live in heaven the way that we live in a house, right? God can exist without heaven. That doesn't have to be a heaven. God still exists. It's not like God was born into heaven and heaven is the place where he lives, right? God created that place and prior to the existence of heaven, God still was, right? So, so there is nothing that contains him. There is nothing that he needs in order to survive, okay? There is no other God like me. So this commandment is not saying not to have images, but not to worship those images as if they were representations of God. So when we have a cross, for instance, and we kiss the cross, we venerate the cross, maybe we bow down to the cross, what are we saying? We are not saying that this is God. We're saying this image reminds us of God. This image reminds us of the crucifixion. This image reminds us of our salvation. When we wear a cross around our necks, for instance, this, this reminds us of what we have received as a gift from God, reminds us of the sacrifice that Christ made. But no one, and, and we treat the object with respect. You know, like for instance, if a cross falls on the ground, we're quick to pick it up. You know, we don't, we don't treat it as a common object, but that's not because we believe that God is in this. You know, we don't worship it as it is God. It just reminds us of God. It's a tool to help us to worship. The same thing with the icons. We venerate them. We respect them. We, we actually say that the icons are like representations of the saints to us. But they are not the actual saint, right? They are wood. They're made of wood, right? But, but we respect them as though we are respecting the saint. They are reminders to us to, to, of, of, the, of the lives of the saints. So how does this apply to us? Okay, so... Uh, Really, the second commandment, I mean, most of us are not going to make idols and objects that we worship as God. But there are other things that we, we make into, maybe not carved images, but, but things that we attribute, qualities that we should only attribute to God. For instance, in the Old Testament, it was, it was many times the case that whenever the Israelites were threatened by other nations, okay, um, what is it that they would do? Instead of going to God and asking for assistance to protect them from the other nations, they would go to Egypt, for instance, and they would try to make a pact with the Egyptians so that the Egyptians would come and save them. This is a kind of making an idol, right? 
you're saying like we are we think that our protection is going to come from a physical object in this case a, f a nation rather than God himself so it is a limiting of God you can consider that the second commandment is kind of like do not limit God do not put any limit or restriction on him on what he is on what he is capable of so how do we limit God we fear he cannot protect us that's a limitation of God we disobey him because we believe that his way is not the best right this is also a limitation we we argue with him we tell him no you are wrong we think that uh, my will is better than your will we forget that he is omnipresent that he is in all places that there is nothing that restricts where he where he dwells and where he lives we feel alone meaning we don't feel like he is with us we complain because we don't like his ways we rebel because we don't believe his words we believe we are more clever than him if you the story of um, those people who built the Tower of Babel because they wanted to make a very tall tower so that if they climb it God would not be able to uh, to flood the earth and to destroy them again or that they could rise up all the way to heaven and reach the kingdom of heaven because of their own ingenuity this is a kind of making a, an image like a carved image of God they are limiting him right they are limiting him they say we as human beings are capable of, of of outsmarting him right that means he is just like something in the creation something that we are we are actually more superior to him right this is a type of kind of breaking of this commandment so if we go back to the commandment okay so he said what read it again he said you shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth okay you shall not bow to them nor serve them and then so that's like the main part of the commandment and then he says what for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands uh, to those who love me and keep my commandments so there is a kind of like consequence that God is saying here what will happen if you break this commandment okay so he's saying he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children meaning if you break this commandment then even your children will suffer the consequences of this sin so but then we have to ask the question is God saying that if I commit a sin then my children are going to be punished what do you think yes or no so how do we understand what he is saying? Okay. They will have a harder life in what way? Yes, right? So what he say so so to show that no the children are not going to be punished for the sins of their fathers there's this verse in ezekiel the soul who sin shall die the son shall not bear the guilt of the father nor the father bear the guilt of the son the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself so it makes it clear everyone is judged according to their own actions not to the actions of the other so but how do we understand then what is being said in the second commandment well he's saying exactly like what you're saying that people reap the consequences of the sins of their parents meaning if their parents are very righteous and good people then by nature the children will learn from their parents to also be the same P 
children learn from their parents, they imitate them. They, 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 they learn their system of values from them. Whatever it is that the parents do, the children are going to be likely to do. That doesn't mean that the children don't have free will and can't choose to go wrong. It doesn't mean that. But to a large extent, the children are going to follow the parents and they're going to learn their values, their beliefs, their faith from the parents. So if the parents are wicked, then it's very hard for the children to grow up and be righteous, right? So if the parents are uh, worshiping idols, what is it that the children are going to learn? They're going to learn to worship idols as well, right? So children reap the natural consequence of the sins of the parents, okay? And that's something very important for all of us as parents to know that our actions are having very, very significant effect on our children, um, even and especially when we don't realize that it's happening. You know, sometimes we, we try to be on our best behavior at times um, in front of our children. We make sure, like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to say this certain thing or I'm going to do the certain thing because I want them to see me. But, you know, all, you know, I'm sure all parents realize this, but our children th see through that very easily. Like, they know what we are. They know who we are. They're not, they're, not, they're not fooled by us pretending to be a certain way for their sake. They can see through this and know us. And so whatever it is that we are, this is what they are going to be. Okay, This is what they're going to follow. So if you're teaching your children to worship idols, then they will be condemned because of their own actions of learning to worship idols from the parents. This is true with, with positive things too. Like if you have parents who are very faithful, who pray, who, who come to church, who read the, the word of God, who, who are forgiving and loving and are filled with virtue, the, the children are going to naturally absorb this themselves. And so this is actually one of the greatest things that we do to raise our children is not any necessarily specific technique, but simply being godly. Being godly, being loving, this is a way for our children to learn. Okay. We'll start on the third commandment. We have just a few minutes. Okay, The third commandment, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And really the third commandment is based on the first two in the sense that if there is only one God, and this God is greater than everything, right, and, and we don't, like, like this God is above anything we can even conceive. So he's very unique. There is nothing like him. There is nothing else that exists that is like him. So when we take the name of the Lord God in vain, means that we are using the name of God in a common way or, or even in a way of cursing, right? But, but even without cursing, we are devaluing the name of God and making it just like any name, right? So, for instance, like when people say, oh, my God, right? And they say it not really as a prayer to God. They are just saying like as a as something that maybe we, we've learned to just say, like, I'm surprised about something. And I say that, right? What is that really saying? It says that I've taken the name of God and I have used it not really as a prayer or, or addressing God. I've just used it as a common word. Right? I've just used it as a common word. And of course, there are people who even curse with the name of God. Right? So taking the name of the Lord God in vain means we are, we are not treating as special his name. Okay? Because his name represents him. His name is our, like when we hear the name of God, the God comes to our mind, like the thought of God. 
comes to our mind. In Malachi 1.11, it says, For from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Second Samuel 7. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name, in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Acts chapter 3. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So the name of God is, 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 is like to be honored and glorious, but the name of God is actually used to perform miracles. Okay, When, when, when St. Peter said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk right in the name acts chapter 4 now lord look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant jesus so invoking the name of god is is powerful wonders are performed by his name also the name of god frightens demons okay when the 70 disciples and the 70 apostles returned from their uh, evangelism mission, um, it says in Luke chapter 10, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And in Mark 16, and these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. So it's very clear, like the name of God is, is, is something is special about the name of God. This is not just an, a common name that we use to refer to one another. It's a very, very um, unique name. This is actually why, and I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, like in, 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 in the Egyptian culture, okay, for this reason, we don't name anyone Jesus, right? We don't, we don't, people don't have their babies and they decide to name them Jesus um, be, because the name of God is unique and special. And every time you hear the name Jesus, you want to think of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? There's other cultures that because they say that, well, Jesus is, 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 is a wonderful name and it's we're honoring God by naming our children Jesus. So there's different people have maybe different opinion about it. But one time I like ordered like some food from DoorDash, right? And then it sends you a text message as your driver is like coming close. And so it said to you like, Jesus is approaching with your food, right? So it was like... <laughs> It like threw me off. <laughs> I didn't understand what it was saying. And then I realized that that person's name was the driver. His name was Jesus. Okay. So, so what I'm saying is it's funny because like the name Jesus, like when you hear the name Jesus, like it, it has a meaning to you. You understand what it means. Like you think about God. So to use the name, e even though I know like the people who name their children Jesus, they're not meaning to be disrespectful and they're meaning to honor the name. But to simply use the name for any purpose other than to refer to God is a kind of like using it in vain. Also, we depend on the name of the Lord. In Proverbs 18.10, says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. That we are safe even in the name of the Lord. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. We also receive sacraments in the name of the Lord. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
right? So the baptism is in the name of the Trinity. James chapter 5, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We also hallow the name of the Lord. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay? So we have to be, like, again, take the name of the Lord very, very, in a very special way. In Leviticus, it speaks about how we should not swear by the name of the Lord. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And in Zechariah, I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. So the third commandment, what is it about? It's about do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Use the name of God for what it's intended for. It, is, it casts out demons. It brings blessings. You know, it's powerful. It can perform miracles. It is a source of protection. Uh, we, we, we receive the Holy Spirit through the name of the Lord. But don't use the name of the Lord casually. Don't use it just like a common thing, like any, like any other name that you would use. So that is, um, that is the third commandment. Does anyone have any comments? Yes. So we understand that um, a sculpture can be treated just like an icon in the sense that you're not actually worshiping the sculpture, right? It is uh, something, again, that brings to your mind the, the, the object of the sculpture, right? So in, as, as a principle, it's not wrong. But we avoid it to simply so that people do not misunderstand what we are doing because in the Old Testament they had actual sculpted idols and they were worshiping those idols so that's why in like the coptic church we avoid the sculpture doesn't mean that the sculpture is wrong it just means that um because it's so similar looking to what the pagans were doing we just said okay we're going to stick to the icons right and do that but there are people for instance might have like a sculpture of christ or saint mary or i mean we had like the nativity scene here in the lobby um and and we didn't consider that to be breaking of the second commandment um so so again like every it's all about the spirit like what are you doing because i mean someone could even have an icon and and worship it it's possible for a person to do that so this is more just like an economy of the church and how do we make sure that people are not misunderstanding what we're doing and so it was decided not to use the sculpture but but the catholic church uses them yeah yes Being being uh, defiled, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Why do we consecrate them? The idea of consecration is to set it apart for no other use than for the use in the church. So, for instance, you can have an icon that you hang at your house, right? Um, and there are icons that come to the church and are not consecrated, meaning if you had an icon that's not consecrated, you can actually take it home and use it in your house, potentially. Like, for instance, if the church doesn't need those icons anymore, you could do that. But once something becomes consecrated, it's saying this can only be used for the service in the church, and so it becomes holy, right? Like, this thing is consecrated to God, no, no other purpose, no other use for it. The same thing is true like with the altar. You can have a consecrated altar where the bishop comes and he anoints it with oil consecrated. At that point, it can never be used for anything else. Some churches, like actually our altar is not consecrated. We have a, uh, what's called a holy board. It's like a wooden board that's consecrated. And we put it on the altar in order to use this table as an altar. So, for instance, if we were at some point in the future decide, hey, we want a new altar. We don't want to use this one. We can do that. Some churches are completely consecrated. If you consecrate the actual church itself, like the walls of the church, everything, then you wouldn't even be able to enter the church without taking off your shoes. It's one of the reasons why we don't consecrate the entire church usually. We consecrate the icons, we consecrate the altar, different things, but to consecrate the actual church itself, you it would be kind of like in the monastery where you have to take your shoes off outside and come in so essentially consecration it makes something to be a hundred percent dedicated to god if you were to consecrate a church you couldn't sell the church you know because it's now permanently consecrated to god yeah yeah but you can't take the walls with you yeah yeah the icons everything you can take yeah you would have to take yeah, and you cu you couldn't use them for any other purpose. Yeah. Yes. So so in the Old Testament it says that we should not tattoo our body. Okay. In Egypt as a because there was persecution in Egypt and because all of the Coptic people wanted to identify together as being Coptic, and it was an important part of their identity, and actually there are places where if you don't, like someone was telling me they went to Egypt, and they didn't have a tattoo on their on their, on their their wrist, the, the cross, they wouldn't let them in the church, right? So in Egypt, it has a functional purpose, even though this was not the intention, like God does not want this to tattoo. But it, it has a, a necessary purpose in Egypt. So when I see people who are tattooing in Egypt, I understand the reason behind it. But that doesn't mean that all of us should now start getting tattoos of Jesus and St. Mary's and crosses and all kinds of things and, and saying that this is, like, this is okay. So, so I always tell people, like, avoid getting tattoos. Don't get tattoos. Even tattoo of a cross or anything. like You can wear a cross. You don't have to get the tattoo of the cross. Um, just, again, so we don't go against... The, the commandment because he says what the body is God's right like the body the flesh is is God's so we cannot we cannot put anything on it like we can't change it it's it, it belongs to him yeah yes We're out of time.
<laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you after. I'll talk to you. <laughs> In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask you, O God, to write your commandments on our hearts so that we carry with them with us wherever we go. And so that we know, O Lord, that you are with us and that we seek to please you at all times. We know, O Lord, that these commandments are made for our protection and for our good, to keep us safe, O Lord, in this life and to increase our joy and our and our relationship with you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us the evil one in Christ Jesus our Lord for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever amen the love of God the Father the grace of the only begotten Son our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all go in peace the peace of the Lord be with you all amen